You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Can we give them a round of applause, Aaron and Jared? Coming back. Well, welcome back. I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving uh, full of family dinners uh, and millions of awkward questions uh, from family members asking uh, what you're majoring in, if you're dating someone, uh, if you're, you know, you got your life figured out. Uh, I'm super thankful to get to do this again, uh, this being coming together as brothers and sisters. I'm uh, praising our God together, studying his word, singing songs, and feasting on the glory of God. So let me pray for us. And then we're going to get after it. Um, God, show us your glory tonight. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got to go home for Thanksgiving. Uh, home is Honey Grove, Texas. Uh, me and my boy, Alan Chang, uh, over here, packed our bags up and went home to Honey Grove, uh, the sweetest town in Texas. Uh, did anybody else grow up in a small town? Anybody? Oh, goodness. How small? Anybody less than 1,000 people? So a few of you. Honey Grove is the epitome of a small town. Honey Grove is in uh, the middle of nowhere, uh, surrounded by miles and miles of nothingness, surrounded by more and more miles of nothingness. Uh, half of the town is my family. Uh, in Honey Grove, there's a, uh, one gas station that serves pretty decent hamburgers. Uh, there's one stoplight. And then most of the people who graduate from Honey Grove like, still hang around Honey Grove. That's just how it is. Uh, an exciting day for us was the 25-minute drive to the closest McDonald's or Walmart uh, or movie theater. Uh, for example, our post-prom plans uh, were to drive an hour 10 uh, to the closest IHOP. Uh, because we thought IHOP was the greatest thing on God's green earth, uh, which just shows you how sad and sheltered we were. Uh, it's such a culture shock to get to move to Denton and have everything right here. Uh, but I wouldn't trade anything in the world for living in my small town. I love that place. Um, perhaps uh, the biggest and only perk of living in a small town uh, is going to be the sky at night. Uh, and you guys who grew up in a small town know what I'm talking about. Uh, every night, unless it was cloudy, uh, you could go out and see uh, what seemed to be hundreds and hundreds of stars uh, shining in the night. Uh, and so while you city folk uh, have your malls and your 11 Starbucks, did you get, Denton has 11 Starbucks, um, your bowling alleys, uh, your parks, your movie theaters, your excitement, your fun, you know, joy, things like that. At least we have our stars and tractors and stuff. Some of you are like, bro, we have stars here too. Just let me have this one. Uh, I don't doubt that many of you at some point have seen uh, a night full of stars. We actually have a picture. Uh, Jonathan, if you want to throw that picture up uh, of these stars. Is it back here? Oh, shoot. That's not from Honey Grove. That's from Google. Um, <laughs> but the fact is, this is a picture taken from somewhere, I assume, uh, on the earth, which blows me uh, away. Uh, we're on this speck of dust. Uh, spinning at millions of miles per hour uh, on it, held together by a gravity of a little magnet. While there's millions and millions of stars and planets uh, and things I can't pronounce, I actually found a picture of something from the Hubble telescope. Um, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. That thing exists out there right now as I'm speaking. Things like that exist out there. Uh, and tonight, we're going to start part two of our Mission for Glory series. And what I've tried to do with this series is tell you why you exist, why the universe exists the way that it does. And when the answer is pervasive all over Scripture. We saw it two weeks ago, and it's this. Everything is about God. There's a quote from John Piper. It says this. It is about the greatness of God. 
not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. To say something about himself. Here's the deal. By God's grace, I have got to experience two life-changing moments in my life. One, uh, God called me out of the darkness of my sin and fake Christianity that I knew for 19 years. And that made my heart cold and numb to the gospel. Two years ago, I sat right over there in those two empty seats. Probably sat in one of them. Uh, and my college pastor, Austin Wadlow, preached a sermon on Matthew chapter 7. And it says this. Jesus says to some guys, um, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? And then he tells them, depart from me, I never knew you. And I knew in that moment, if I were to have a heart attack or die that night, or if a meteor came and smashed my body, that I was going to die and appear before Jesus Christ. And he was going to say, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? And I would say something like, uh, Jesus, I went to church my whole life. My grandpa's a pastor. I did this, this, and this. And he would say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so by God's grace, in that moment, I realized I had grown up in my grandfather's faith. I never believed the gospel. And then by God's grace, he gave me faith in his son and the redeeming work of the cross, and he justified me before him. So that was the best day of my life, sitting around over there two years ago. Uh, the second most life-changing moment of my life was when God opened my eyes to the truth that everything God has done, is doing, and will do is about God. It is about God and not, not me. Something clicked. All of this is about God. That God is the center of the universe and not me. That the driving force of creation and sending his son to the earth to die for the sins was because God loved his own glory. And that he wanted it to be treasured over all things. That God was the center of the universe and not Zach. Here's the a, here's a deal. My whole life, I tried to hijack the story of God. I wanted this Bible to be about me. This, thing is, this whole life is about me and what I did and what I had accomplished. And then, all of a sudden, by God's grace, I'm, I'm reading this Bible, and on every single page, I can't escape the truth that all of this is about God. I can't stop seeing it. Everywhere I look, I see it in this Bible. But I grew up thinking it was all about me, that Jesus left heaven on a beeline for Zach Cunningham. He's like, Father, I got to go save Zach. He was born in a manger for me. He lived a life for me. He taught some good people. He taught some good things to some people, uh, and then he ditched them to go to the cross to die for me. He was buried in some random guy's tomb that wasn't important for me, and then he rose from the dead for me to save my sins, and then he went to a mountain, told them, hey, go preach the gospel so Zach will be saved, and then he left earth to go build me a house. My favorite hymn growing up was, I've got a mansion over the hilltop. You guys hear that song? I've got a mansion of the hilltop. Uh, that was, I sang that all the time at my church growing up. Jesus is going to build me a house, and my house is going to be huge. It's going to have an ocean view with an infinity pool. Uh, it's going to be a big house. I'm going to have a fireplace with a, like a mantle and a painting of me, uh, a portrait probably painted by Jesus wearing some sort of 18th century clothing. Uh, my house was going to be next to Moses' house because that's how important I was. Uh, MTV Cribs was going to come check out my house. Uh, they can't wait for me to get to heaven. They can't wait for me to get to heaven. He did not want heaven without Zach. And then, perhaps the turning point for me was when I was asked this question. Would you be satisfied in heaven if you had 
everybody in your family there that you wanted, all the health and restoration of your prime, everything you disliked about yourself fixed, have every recreation you've ever dreamed of available to you, and have infinite resources and money to spend, would you be satisfied in heaven if God wasn't there? If God wasn't there? And my answer to that question revealed the idolatry inside my heart, my sin, that I was living for myself and not for God, but God is the only one worth living for, that God is the center of the universe, not Zach, um, and I'm, I'm not the center of heaven either, praise God, um, but God still loves me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. God does love me, and he does love you. He loves you more than you will ever love yourself. He has cared for you more than you will ever care for yourself. And he has given to you more than you ever even dream about giving to yourself. But God's highest priority is not you. You are not God's highest priority. You're not the center of God's world. God is the center of God's world. He does everything for himself. And I don't want you to believe me unless you see it in scripture. Uh, I'm going to show it to you. Isaiah 42, 8. Uh, I'm going to have these verses on the screen. And so you can jot these down if you'd like. Isaiah 42, 8. It says this. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God says, I am the Lord. I'm not giving my glory to anyone. Why? Because they don't deserve it. He's not going to say, hey, Zach, do you want to be the center of the universe for a little while? He's not going to say that. I wasn't created to be the center of the universe. This is why I was created. Genesis 1, 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you were created as an image. So what is an image? An image is something that displays or reflects something or it communicates some sort of message. Um, for example, a, a painting is an image. And a painting is going to reflect or display what the painter wants it to display. His, the painter's creativity and skill. For example, if I bust open Microsoft Paint right now and paint a stick figure with a basketball, it's going to reflect a few things. Uh, one being I failed seventh grade art, and two being I don't possess the creativity or the skill to do much better. Okay, So the painting is going to display some things about the painter. And the painting is also going to display what the, what the painter wanted it to display in the first place. And God created you as an image for what? To display his glory. So it's what you're created to do, to display his glory. And we're not a bunch of stick figures with basketballs running around. Look around. The heavens are roaring, the praise of his glory, that we're created in his image. But not only us, the whole heavens uh, declare it. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. And the sky above proclaim his glory handiwork. All of heaven and nature sing. The East Texas sky, it all sings one thing. Glory to God. Glory to God. God deserves the glory. And God is communicating something when he makes the universe big and man small. He's saying, look at me. Worship me. I'm the only one worthy of being worshipped. And not only creation, but also the narrative that happens inside of creation, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus, on his way to the cross, said this in John 12. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled? Then what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
Why did Jesus come? Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So for what purpose did Jesus come? To glorify his Father. And then God from heaven says, oh, don't you worry. I have glorified it, and I'm going to glorify it again. No one is stopping that train. God is going to get his glory. So now what do we do? 1 Peter 4, 11 says this. Whoever serves as one who serves, how? By the strength that God supplies. In order that, here's why. In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why? Because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we're supposed to do everything to the glory of God. Why? Because to him belong the glory. For how long? Forever and ever. Forever and ever. What a God that we serve. Um, the last one of about 100 in the Bible, my favorite passage of scripture in the Bible, Romans 11, 33, says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he might counsel him? For who has, he, has given something to him that God might repay him? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, the depths of God's riches. Why are things created? They're created from him, through him, and for what? To him. That's why things exist. For the glory of God. We don't serve a small God. We serve a massive God. And we can't even comprehend how massive he is, can we, Patrick? When I realized that, my life was changed forever. This life is not about my mission for glory. It's about God's mission for his own glory. And I want to make this point again. I made it two weeks ago, but this is my favorite thing to preach. God being for himself and for his glory is the most loving thing he could possibly do. God being from himself He's not being selfish. He's not being egotistical because he's the only one who's worthy of praise. He's being God. He's being God, the greatest thing in the world. And when you, as God, know that you're the greatest thing in the world and you allow the people who you say you love turn their heart's affections from anything other than you, you in that moment are no longer being loving. You say, I'm God, I'm the greatest thing in the world, the treasure that you were created for. How do I know that? Because I created you. But I'm just going to hide my glory. I'm not even going to let you see it. I'm going to let you piddle around and find satisfaction in something that will not satisfy you, like money, sex, and drugs. And then, which newsflash is ultimately going to fail you, and you're going to get hurt. Because your money is going to be gone, your drugs are going to be gone, the sex is going to be gone. And when God does that, he proves to you he does not care for you. But God does not do that. He displays his glory for all to see as the most awesome thing in the universe. And he says, look, worship me. Find your joy in me. Stop finding your joy in little things. Desire bigger things. Desire God. And your joy will be made complete. So God is after his glory and our good. God gets the glory. We get the joy. That is our reward. Um, and so that's the foundation for this series, a mission for glory, uh, that the almighty, all-powerful God is ferociously after his own glory. And out of love, he lets us into that story. That's the foundation for this series. And for these three weeks, I wanted to talk about what, what God's word says, how we can get in on that mission for glory. 
Because if God being for his own glory, if that train's not going to stop and that train's destination is glory, I'm trying to jump on that train and enjoy the ride. So what does God's word say about us playing a part in that? Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus teaching us to pray for the glory, to pray for it. Our Father in heaven, that's where he's at, hallowed be your name, glorify your name. And tonight, we're going to look at what it means to go for God's glory. The title of tonight's sermon is Go for the Glory. Tonight, we're going to be talking about missions. We have seen in scripture that the end of all things is the glory of God, and we want to learn how we get in on the mission of God's glory so we don't waste our lives doing stupid, meaningless stuff. That's what we want to do. And so, before I tell you the go part of God's mission, I want to show you something. Take your Bible and turn to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Right before Matthew. We're going to be looking at Malachi 1, verse 11. Malachi 1, verse 11. If you got it, say got it. All right, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is one of the most tremendous statements in the Bible about God's sovereignty and missions. This is God saying, this shall be done with certainty, period. This is going to be done. My name is going to be great among the nations in every place. So we got God saying that, and this is in Malachi. This is about 400 years before Jesus comes. And so hang on. Malachi says, my name will be great among the nations. And now take your Bible and turn to the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation, we've got John. He's got a vision of heaven, and he's looking at the throne of God. And in Revelation 7, verse 9, if you've got it, say, got it. Revelation 7, verse 9, John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. There's a lot of people there. From every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So God says in Malachi, his name will be great among the nations, and then God gets his name great among the nations. In Revelation, God gets his name great among the nations. Why? Because he is a promise keeper. Why? Because he's committed to his own glory. And God's going to get his glory. Uh, you might hear this. Oh, um, poor God. He wants to reach the nations. He wants to do so much. Um, but unless we cooperate, he's not going to get his purposes done. Man has got to work or God's not going to accomplish his purposes. As if God was in heaven crying like a three-year-old. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Look at me. Man can disobey God, but God is going to get the work done. The Great Commission does not depend on one person or one organization. It's not our problem to get it done. It's going to get done. It is our privilege to participate. 
It is our privilege to get to participate. And if you participate, you get joy. And if you don't participate, God will raise up a people who will. God is going to get his glory. I want to show you guys something real fast. This is a map that I pulled from the International Missions Board. Jonathan, you can throw that map up there. Um, this is called the Global Status of Evangelical Christianity. Um, I got it from the IMB. Um, basically, each point, you can barely see it, each point is about 50,000 people uh, around the world. And the green is going to represent, the dark green represents over 10% of the population who say that they're Christians. Okay, that's the dark green. Uh, the light green uh, and the other shades of green are going to be from 2 to 10%. And then any shade that's not green, any other color, is going to be less than 2%. Uh, and it's going to be more red depending on if there isn't a church planning effort there. So the darker the red, the, the less work is being done there. Uh, and so... I'll show you all that to say there's roughly about 4.3 billion people who don't know Jesus, who, who are unreached with the gospel. 4.3 billion. It's over half the world, I think. Um, but why do I show you that? Um, I show you that because there are over 16,000 people groups on this planet, and our God deserves praise from every single one of them. And here's the deal. He's going to get it. And he's going to get it. So why do I show you that? Uh, how does this map tie back to what we saw in Malachi 1 and Revelation 7, 9? That God is going to get his glory among every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. It will happen. God's going to make it happen. Why? Because God loves his glory. And so this is the greatest confidence that we have as Christians. How? Because if God calls you to a place... Let's say it's the Sahara Desert to a tribe no one's ever talked to or ever reached. You stay there and you preach the gospel true enough and you preach the gospel long enough, someone from that place is getting saved. It may not be you. You might not see the fruit of your labor, but God does say there will be fruit. And that's a promise. And what a promise that is. This means that someone from the Jandera people of Mumbai, India, is going to call on the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, that means that the Gadami people in the Amazon rainforest is going to be my brother in Christ. Uh, a Quechua-speaking Peruvian and a Cherokee Native American is going to be in heaven with us, singing, Worthy is the Lamb. That means that the Middle East is free game. China is open. Because my... My Savior, my Lord said that he shed his blood for someone from every people, tribe, and language. And my God's going to get that done. He's going to. It's a promise. And what a promise it is. That's the end of all of this. Missions is a can't-lose thing. Can't lose. At all. So why go for God's glory? Let me give you a silly example. Let's say you had a time machine. And you went in the future, uh, and you saw the Cowboys win out without Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, they beat the Eagles to win the NFC East, and they beat the golden boy Tom Brady and the Patriots to win the Super Bowl. Uh, you're going to come back, and you're going to bet your checking account, your mama's checking account, your mama, your girlfriend, and your dad's car on the Dallas Cowboys. And you're going to do it. Why? Because you know how this plays out. And it's not going to matter the ridicule or the shame that you get from using your things recklessly. You know how this plays out. 
Look at me. God's mission is infinitely more important than the Dallas Cowboys and infinitely more rewarding. Don't waste your life. Bet your life on that because he's going to get it done. That's a promise. That is the fountain of courage and boldness that we drink from. That's the fountain that William Carey, the great missionary, drank from on his way to India. That's the promise Paul, the apostle Paul, drank from on his way to Rome. God's going to get me to Rome, so I don't care what happens. That's how Paul acted all the time. God is going to get this done. So that's why we go for God's glory, because it's a can't-lose thing. But what does it mean to go for God's glory? Uh, Are we just sending a bunch of people on airplanes all over the world? What does it mean to go? But before we answer that question, we need to think about this. Um, Why aren't those people worshiping God? They see the same stars that we do. Uh, They see the same creation uh, that we do around us. But the glory of God is not honored. The beauty of God is not treasured. And the holiness of God is not feared. They are not worshiping God. Natural revelation is not getting through to them. And so why are they not worshiping God? Well, the Bible says it's because they hate God. And not only them, not only the people on the map, uh, but so did we. That I hated God. That you hated God. That everyone was brought forth in iniquity hating God. That we all choose to hate God. Think about what the Bible says. Not even three whole chapters into this book, man is sinfully lost. Three chapters. That we have spurned the authority of God. We've slandered the goodness of God. And that we disobeyed the word of God. And it doesn't get any better than that. The God who sets the planets into motions and that told the waves to come this far and do not go further. The God who tells the winds to, to wave, the rain to fall, and the mountains to come up. Everything in creation obeys God, but then you get to man. And man has the audacity to look at God and say no. To say no. So why aren't they worshiping God? Romans 1 says they exchanged the glory of God for an image of man. They would exchange the truth of God for a lie, that before Christ we are full of unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. We're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. We are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Romans 2 says that we prefer the praise of man over the praise of God. Romans 3 says there is none righteous. There is not even one. That no one seeks for God. No one understands. All of us have turned aside. Together we have become useless. Our throat is an open grave. With our tongues we deceive. Our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And that the poison of ash is under our lips. The peace is not in our path and we do not seek for God. There is no fear of God before our eyes. Romans 5 says we are weak, ungodly, and haters of God. And... Uh, and that in Romans 8, God says there is no condemnation. Listen, the reason why we go for God, the reason why we go for God is in Ephesians 2, it says we're dead. Ephesians 2, we are dead. We are morally evil. And so it's important to make the point that apart from God, we are nothing. Psalm 16, I have no good besides you. Apart from God, we are nothing. The world is a lost place, and we are once there. When I was in Asia, it was Friday, and it was about noontime, and it was during the month of Ramadan, and my team and I watched about 8,000 Muslim men 
enter into this mosque, and they would prostrate themselves on the ground, and they would pray to a God that does not exist. And they were trying to cast this burden off of their back. And I stood there like a baby, crying. And the next day, I hiked up a mountain to a Hindu temple, and I watched people pour paint on a wooden carved idol. Again, standing there, the saddest thing. And I knew in that moment that apart from God's grace, I was no better off. Apart from God, I was no better than they, that I was lost. And this is not just those people on the map. This is us. This is who we are in our sinful nature. We are cut off from God. We are enemies of God, slaves of sin, dominated by Satan, children of wrath, lovers of darkness, and destined for hell. You want to know why we go on a mission for God's glory? Because in all of that sinfulness, in all of that darkness, God came on a mission for us. God came on a mission for us. God, in the climax of making his glory known throughout the cosmos, sent his son to be a light in the darkness. That God, yes, we were enemies, yes, we were dead, but while we were enemies and while we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. He bore the wrath of God that we deserve because we did not worship him or display his glory like we were created to. He bore that wrath of our sin and died on a cross for us. And in doing so, he defeated death. And in that moment, he made a way for us to return to what we were created to be, and that is to worship God. It's what we were created to do. His glory is now our reward. And that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was God's chosen way to glorify himself the most. God could have done anything to glorify himself. Anything. And so whatever he did choose was going to be the perfect way to do it. And he chose the slain son, the slain lamb, to glorify himself the most. So that is a perfect way for him to get glory. He chose Jesus as the message and us as the messengers. Get your Bible. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. We're going to read verse 11. Romans 10, 11 says this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. It doesn't matter where they're from. It could be a pagan worshiper from the mountains of Nepal or a Buddhist from Madagascar. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is God getting glory. If you're calling on God's name, what's that make you look like? Helpless and weak. And God looks strong. God is getting glory. That's what this is about. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Right there, those words, the good news, that is what we have. The gospel, it's, and it's the most shareable news in the world. The most shareable news in the world, that people deserve to be damned to hell, but the slain son also deserves the reward for his suffering. 
The slain son deserves his reward, and he's going to get it. That is what it means to go. We're not just taking water bottles and care packages and rebuilding homes. We're taking the gospel to the nations, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I remember the first time I heard a preacher say that sending water bottles to thirsty, perishing souls without sending the gospel is providing them the most comfortable road to hell. And that hit my ears really hard, but it hit my heart a lot harder. We take the gospel to the nations because the gospel is what saves. Jesus did care for the physical needs of the people, yes, but he also cared for the spiritual needs of the people. That's why he died on a cross. And our task now is the glory of God being worshipped, to hold the banner of the risen lamb in front of the whole world because the whole world belongs to him. And that is our mission. And so I want to make missions very simple for you going forward. Uh, this is going to have two, it's going to play out two different ways. Um, we have a call in our lives to make disciples of all nations. That is the call on every believer, to go and make disciples of all nations, the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is going to play itself out. It's going to manifest itself. All of us should be equally devoted to the Great Commission, 100%. And that devotion is going to manifest itself in two ways. There's an illustration made famous uh, by the great missionary William Carey, whose mission field was India. And he's known as the father of modern missions because of his work in the foreign mission field. He spent 41 years in India, that's twice our age, and translated the Bible into 40 different languages. That's 39 more than I speak. And the reason why Carey got to go to India for so long is because back at home, there was a man named Andrew Fuller who supported him. William Carey viewed the people of India uh, as people at the bottom of a well with no way out. Like people, like a gold mine at the bottom of the earth, and, and no one has explored it yet. Because nobody in India had heard of the gospel, and he told Andrew Fuller, he told him this, I will go down if you hold the rope. I will go down there, Andrew, if you hold the rope. And hold the rope, Andrew Fuller did. He prayed for William Carey. He supported him financially. He wrote him letters to encourage him. And he fought off the people who were trying to crush William Carey's um, missions. And so everyone in here, you are either called to go down in the well or to hold the rope for people who will. Or to hold the rope for people who will. Now, which one are you doing? Which one are you doing? Some of you in here, I get excited just thinking about it. I cried typing this up. Um, some of you, my dear friends, are called to go down into the well. And you know it. God's been working on your heart. You're called to go down into the well. Praise God for you. Thank you. There's, there's like 400 people here. And some of you are going to go down into the well with your whole life. And it would be amazing. Man, how amazing it would be if 200 people in this room committed themselves to foreign missions. 200 people. Going down into the well. Do not waste your life. If you are called to go down in the well, do not stand at the top and sit on that conviction. Act. And if you are not in the well, you are called to hold the rope to hold the rope. Do not let the call on a missionary's life 
be any harder than it's going to be just because they can't find anybody in this Disneyland we call America who is willing to hold the rope. You hold the rope for the people who are going to go down into that well, give their life to it. Are you doing that? Yes. Then let me see your hands. Because you guys did tug of war growing up. You hold a rope long enough, there's going to be scars on your hands. What, it, what does it cost you to hold the rope? What have, you, what have you sacrificed? What have you given up in order to hold that rope? Show me the scars on your knees of you bowing before the God of glory and praying for the people who are down in the well. Hold the rope. And so, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song of worship to our God of glory. And then I'm going to come back up here with a few opportunities uh, for you to either hold the rope or get a taste of going down into the well. Um, but before I do that, I just preached a whole sermon on why you should give your life to foreign missions. And here I am in Denton, Texas. I'm not in Sudan. I'm not in Iraq. The call in my life was not to go down into the well, but to hold the rope and to inspire you and show you guys who are supposed to go down into the well why you should go down into the well. It's because missions is a can't-lose thing. That's why you should go down. Because who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one can. And so, this is what I wanted to do. Before I end, I want to read you a few quotes from some guys who did go down into the well. Men and women who committed their lives to foreign missions, of whom sandals I am unworthy to untie. And so here are some quotes from some people who did. First one. What are we here for? To have a good time with Christians or to go save souls? That's from Malamo. She was a missionary to the Zulu people in South Africa. Expect great things from God and then attempt great things for God. That was William Carey, missionary to India. I will lay my bones by the Ganges River that the people in India might know someone cares for them. Alexander Duff, also a missionary to India. It will not do to say that you have no special call to go to China. With the facts laid before you and the call on your life from Jesus Christ to preach the gospel to every creature, you need rather to ascertain whether you have a special call to stay at home. That is from J. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. When he landed there in 1848, there were no Christians here. When he left in 1872, there were no heathen. That was said of John Getty, missionary to the Vanuatu Islands. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. They want to stay close to home. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. C.T. Studd, missionary to China, India, and Africa. I will open Africa to the gospel or die trying. Roland Bingham, missionary to Africa. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for China. Hudson Taylor to China. If sinners be damned over my dead body. Charles Spurgeon. Now, Mr. Morrison, do you really expect that you will make an impression on the idolatry in the Chinese empire? You think you're going to make a difference? No, sir, said Morrison. But I expect that God will. That's Robert Morrison to China. And the most important one is this. 
Go make disciples of all nations. Behold, I'm with you always. That's Jesus Christ to all of us. Go for the glory. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.